Okay, so today's episode, we're going to take probably one of the most popular stories out of the Bible, and we're just going to kind of do a uh, deep dive on it. So today we're going to be talking about David and Goliath. Pretty much, uh, we're going to cover their backgrounds, both David and Goliath, and kind of, like, how did those two individuals get to where they were uh, in the Bible at that time? Kind of, like, start with their background and work our way up to the whole David versus Goliath battle. So how did, what, where, how did that whole thing start with? Right. Well, you know, the thing about David and Goliath is, of course, everybody is familiar with the story. I mean, there are, I don't know how many, you know, children's storybooks. People hear it in the Sunday school class. Occasionally it's referenced in, in the pulpits. And, and everybody's familiar with that. Everybody, I mean, it's become part of the, you know. It's Christianity 101. It really is, and, and it's become part of our everyday jargon. David and Goliath, every sports, you know. It's a David versus Goliath, yeah. Exactly, so it's one Whenever of those you things. you have that underdog fight. So it's not like everybody doesn't know the story of, or at least the bare idea of what happened with David and Goliath. Um, it's getting into the actual characters themselves. The funny thing about it is, based on what you see in Talmudic uh, tradition and writings and all that, and for those that don't know, things like the Talmuds, there's more than one, Babylonian Talmud, Jerusalem Talmud, those are like collections of Jewish thought and teachings and traditions and information that basically they started compiling um, after the temple was destroyed in the first century and what they did is, without the unifying uh, architecture of the temple and its services to unite the Jewish people, after its destruction when the Jews were scattered, they were concerned that they would lose their national unity and identity. So in order to keep the traditions and thoughts alive... Uh, and, and to keep Judaism alive and the identity of the Jewish people a, a, a coherent, they basically started putting together these these Talmuds, these collections of uh, what they considered, you know, their view is that this is our orthodoxy. And so basically all of, of Judaism basically draws on things like that. And there are things like Haggadahs and and stuff like this. There's these. There's there's commentaries that are you know. It, it, basically, you find these whole things. There are Talmud and Haggadahs and Megillahs. You know, uh, people used to talk. You know, names. people the whole Megillah. You know, yeah. but essentially, these these are a lot of the different writings that people who are interested in Jewish culture, Jewish religious thought. If you really want to understand the thinking, you you have to take a look at this to understand, to grasp what the thought processes were. And in these um, in these writings, what you find out is there is a connection between David and Goliath that goes back uh, to another book of the Bible. The 
you see the, the narrative of uh, David and Goliath beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And before David and Goliath face off at each other in 1 Samuel 17, there is a connection between these two that goes back uh, to the book of Ruth. And so it seems strange to talk about the book of Ruth, but the uh, situation is that David is the son of Jesse. Okay. It, it pretty much makes that uh, uh, very clear when, when David is presented to Saul. He actually says, you know, I am, I am David. I am the son of Jesse. And Jesse is the son of a man named Obed. And Obed is the son of a man named Boaz. And Boaz is one of the central characters in the book of Ruth. You have this, this uh, situation where Boaz begets you know, Obed and Obed begets Jesse and Jesse begets, All the begets. you know, exactly uh, David who becomes the king of Israel. Now, Goliath has a pedigree as well. And according to the traditions, the pedigree of uh, Goliath is that he is the son of Orpah. Okay. And Orpah is the sister, or pardon me, is one of the two women that marry Malon and Chilion, okay, the daughters of Naomi. And the best way to, and Orpah is the mother of Goliath. So you have here, now Boaz marries Ruth. And Ruth is essentially the great-grandmother of King David. So you have a descendant of Ruth who is battling a descendant of Orpah. And these two women were both uh, uh, married originally to Malon and Chilion, the sons of uh, Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. Hmm. Now, that's a little bit hard to follow. So what we'll do is, in order to sort of break it down, what we'll do is we'll run over to the book of Ruth and we'll sort of give you the, the background narrative about why, how this happened and why it's important. Because the thing about God's word is nothing is random. And so when you're looking at, at God's word, you can run this thing and what you find out is <laughs> nothing ever stays. It, it, it's funny when you, when I study something, I never end up just being in the passage I'm in. I always end up in multiple passages in different books because you find out that these things reference each other. And so what you're doing is you're looking and it's like, Hey, um, this person connects to this person and this event originates in that event. And it's like, okay, 
that makes sense. Now, when you're looking at uh, the book of Ruth, and by now I think most people who are listening have had a chance to actually get there, what you got to understand is the events that happened in the book of Ruth happened during the time of the uh, books of Judges, okay? So that's why it's just before, in the Bible, you'll see it just before um, 1 Samuel and after the book of Judges because it happens in at the time of the Judges, but the events e impact greatly what happens in First and Second Samuel because, again, Ruth is the ancestor of King David. It's a, it's the good like in between. It's it it it. It's the bridge. There's a there's a very important bridge that happens in uh, the book of Ruth. Now, in Ruth chapter one, it says it came to pass. In the days when the judges rule, and there was a famine in the land, that a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Um, so we're told about that this is during the time of the judges, and that there was a famine in the land. And in verse 2 it says, the name of the man was Elimelech. Now Elimelech's name basically, said, basically means that... Uh, my God is the king, you know, my, my king is God. It's like, and the name of his wife is Naomi. And hers has to do with, there's a lot of debates about Naomi's, the meaning of her name and its graciousness and all of this. But there's also a thing that has a thing about sweetness. If you read pulpit commentary, you know, I've got a pulpit commentary and you look at what the scholars say about that. It's almost a, there's this thing where after Naomi loses her husband and her two sons and she goes back to uh, Bethlehem, it's like, is this Naomi? And it's like, don't call me Naomi. And it's like, because it, he's, it, it's like her name, the connotation is like, you know what, my name would, would make you think that God has dealt honestly, sweetly with me but God has dealt bitterly with me. Hmm. So don't call me Naomi anymore because it doesn't fit me. And, but why did that happen? Why was there this bitterness in Naomi's life and that caused people to, to where she felt like her entire name was a lie? Well, Elimelech and his wife Naomi and the two sons in verse 2, Malan and Chilion, and uh, talk about meanings name. Malan and Chilean basically mean uh, sickness and pining. And I've often said, you know, there are times when you read the names of people and what they mean. And it's like, who names their children yeah. that? That's like with like, Eli, why would you do that? Eli the priest and his two sons' names. Yeah. I mean, these are not the qualities you want in your children. You don't want to make these kind of pronouncements. It's like, you know, it's like, 
this is my daughter, Bud Ugly, and my yeah. son, Dumb as a Rock. You know, I mean, you don't give your children names. Good. Yeah, it's not the kind of names you want to make a pronouncement over your children. This now, is my kid's sickness, and this one's poverty. You know, this one, this one is wasting away. It's like, oh, this is this is this was this one's sickness, and this one's consumption. It's yeah. like, oh yeah, like, that's why the would kind you of do that to your kids. You're they're you first off back in the day. I think everyone knew what names meant and stuff. Oh, yeah. So they're like, oh, yeah, hey, your name, that's your name? Why? Why would they name you that? It's like, I named my son Dork, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what do you do? My it's son, like, terrible. His name is like, terrible. Like, it must have been a seriously hard birth. That's all I can think of. Or apparently that Elimelech was really not fond of of these two children. Um, but they're uh, Ephratites. They're of the... Uh, tribe of Ephraim, and, and they live in Bethlehem, Judah, and they come into the country of Moab, and they continue there, okay? Now, let's talk about the fact that they busted a move, because this is, this is one of those things in, in that people need to, that I, I see debated in the commentaries about whether or not it was a good thing or not for Elimelech and his family, because it would have been Elimelech's call. I mean, he was the head of the household, the husband, the dad, his call. They busted a move because there was a famine in the land where they were at. And they made, he made the decision to move them to Moab. Now, if you remember, back in Genesis, God calls Abram, who he renames Abraham, out of Earl of the, Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham busts a move, but he doesn't go the whole route. And what happens is he waits till his dad dies. And once his dad passes away, then he finishes going the full route. Because God said, get up from your get up from your country and your and your family and basically go to this land I'm showing you. Well, he didn't exactly bust the move. He waited till his dad died, and then he finished busting the move and he runs into a situation where he arrives at the right place, the land of promises, and then there's a famine. So what does Abram do? He basically packs up his family and he leaves the land of promise and he goes to Egypt where he tells lies yeah. to Pharaoh because he doesn't want to be killed for his wife's sake and in the process gets rich. And God smites the household of Pharaoh, closes up all the wombs, and is basically going to start really putting it on the Egyptians really bad when the truth comes out. And Pharaoh's not too pleased about this because he didn't like being lied to and played. And it's like, okay, you pray to your God, open the wombs of, of these women, and... We're going to send you on your way because we don't want to mess with you, God, but I ain't thrilled with you. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you need to go back where you came from. Yeah. And he did, but he took with him a bit of baggage called Hagar. Yeah. Who became, <laughs> yeah, a concubine named Hagar. And there's a real bad history about the, what he picked up while he was in Egypt. So a lot of times... And then later on, Isaac, there's a famine in the land. What does he do? He busts a move somewhere. And he tells lies. I mean, the apple did not fall far from the tree in that. So you have both Abraham and Isaac both doing that. 
And you would think that Elimelech, having that in the history, would know that, you know what? You don't move because of the circumstance. You move because God speaks. And that's something that a lot of people don't realize. A lot of people say, well, the circumstance is circumstance. And a lot of times God will use circumstances, but usually he uses circumstances because you're either unable to hear him or you're unwilling to hear him. And he has to kind of drop kick you. Um, But the real model for how we should be doing is basically the one that you see uh, after the Exodus. They camped around a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. And when the pillar moved, they packed up and moved. And when the pillar stopped, they sat down and they unpacked. And it was one, we don't look at the circumstances. We look at God. Where he moves, we move. Where he stops, we stops. And and so many people allow circumstances to determine their actions when it really needs to be the voice of God that determines our actions. If we move, it's because God said to move, not because of adverse circumstances. Abraham fell into that trap, Hagar. Well, Elimelech fell into that trap too. And it says here in verse three, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband died. Now, that's what you call yeah. a really bad life choice when when you bust the move and you die. <laughs> what was that thing from Indiana Jones? He chose poorly. Pretty much. It's like there are some decisions that really... Famine didn't sound that bad, did it? Good, just got skinny. Well, see, and that's the funny thing because it, you look at that and it's like, wow. And the bad thing is he died, but the... Naomi and the sons continued to stay there. Yeah. Honestly, you would think that Elimelech's death would be, I don't know. A sign. Yeah, kind of one of them red flag events. Where it's like, we need to go back now. Yeah, this wasn't a good idea. Well, you know, the funny thing is, when you start looking at the names and the roots of some of these places, it's like the funny thing is, where did they leave? They left Bethlehem. Well, what does that mean? It means the house of bread. Now, isn't it funny that they lived in the house of bread, but there was a famine? Yeah. See, many times your promise, the promise of where God places you, does not correspond with the circumstance that surrounds it. Look what happened to Abraham. He arrives in the promised land, and there's a famine. You would say to yourself, Well, obviously, I must have missed God. Yeah. Of course, maybe if Abraham had did what he was told when he was told. It wouldn't have been a famine. There wouldn't have been a famine. He would have been there in the right place at the right time. But because he didn't do what he was supposed to do when he was supposed to do it, he arrived just in time for a good old famine. Yeah. So there's a timing issue involved. And so... Um, but you've got them and they live in this place called Bethlehem, Elimelech and his family. And it's like, okay, this is interesting. 
the house of bread. Well, the house of bread is in Judah. Okay. So the town is Bethlehem, and it's in the territory of Judah. And Judah, or Yehuda, okay, if, if you want to get into the, uh, the technical Pronunciation. you know, pronunciations and all that, and I am not good at the uh, pronunciations, not like I would like to be. What do you have when you have uh, Judah or Yehuda? What does that name mean? Well, basically, it's, it's like celebrated, but the elements of it are like, when you look at how this, this the, the, the word and its components are translated, part of it is um, praise. Part of it is confession. Okay. And then you get down to the root word yod. So when you take the root word of Yuda and you get down to the root word yod, what does that word mean? Well, it basically means essentially the open outstretched hand. So what do you, you know, looking at that, isn't it interesting that the house of bread is located in the midst of a place whose connotation is to celebrate, to praise, to confess. And at its very root, it has to do with the outstretched open hand. So take that in, in this fashion. The prouse of bread is to be found in confessing and celebrating and praising the outstretched hand of God. Hmm. So you can look at it in that way, and it's like, so when they basically left Bethlehem of Judah to go to the land of Moab, they were basically dissing the hand of God. Hmm. They, they were not celebrating it. They were not praising it. They were not um, confessing. They were not confessing it. They were walking away. They were essentially rejecting it is what Elimelech was doing. Hmm. And he did it in order to go to Moab. Now, Moab was a beautiful land. It was lush. It was fertile. It was, you know, I mean, they weren't having a famine in Moab. Um, but, you know, just because it looks good doesn't mean it is good. Yeah. Because they're going back to our old boy Abraham. There is a moment where Abraham and, and his nephew Lot were, and their herdsmen were really getting on each other's nerves. Yeah. And Abram looks at Lot and it says, okay, here's, tell you what we're going to do. I want you to take a look around, pick a spot, and that'll be yours. And if you want the left, I'll go to the right. And if you want the right, I'll go to the left. Wherever you go, you know, you take your herdsmen, your cattle and all that, and you prosper there. And God bless you. And we will, we will remain on good terms. And, but you pick. And what did he do? Good old Lot looked over towards the, the plains of Zoar. And he said, ooh, that place, and it's described as being watered and lush like the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. He goes, I like the looks of that. And Abram's like, no problem. 
Go for it. Well, where did that lead him to? Leading him led him to a place called Sodom. Yeah. And it's over towards Sodom, and it's like, yeah, that's not, it may look good, but look where that led Lot. Exactly. So look at what happened there. And this is where you got to really understand, if you want to understand what happened to Elimelech and his family, you got to go back to Abraham. See, everybody connects. You don't understand Ruth without Genesis. You don't understand Samuel without Ruth. Exactly. You don't understand Esther without Samuel. And it's one of these really interesting little ticky things. So what happened a lot? God shows up at Abram's tent one day and he says, you know what? I'm going to basically visit my boy, Abram, Abraham, and because I'm about to basically beat down Sodom and Gomorrah. And I shouldn't do this without telling him. And he does tell him. And basically, Abram ends up in a negotiation with God. Willing, if there be but 10 righteous men in the, yeah. yes, I will spare it. You know, go back to your tent now. You know, uh, I've let you whittle me down on this. It's like you whittled me down to 10. There ain't. <laughs> but there weren't 10 in there. And Lot and his daughters were the only ones to escape. His wife looked back, was turned into a pillar of salt. Her uh, lot and his wife's uh, daughters, their husbands did not leave, and they perished in the in the conflagration that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. And so, what happened? They went up in the mountain, and <laughs> in the process of this, Lot goes up there. And his daughters think it's pretty much the end of the world. And they end up having relations with their father. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. Well, wait, Ew. didn't they? So. So they, and guess what? They both yeah. ended up pregnant. Yeah, well, hey. One of the children was named Moab. Okay. So I don't like how this is going. And so and so and and guess where Moab ended up settling, and he ended up being the father of the nation of the Moabites. Ew. And so basically, I wouldn't I wouldn't tell anyone that. This is if one I of those. Was him, I this is one of those we married the cousins who had yeah. some very bad, unpleasant proclivities. I would if I was a lot. I wouldn't go around telling everybody that. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's like, yeah, that's not that's no. A, that's that, a, that's, that's a, to yourself. That's a big no. That's a big no. That's nasty. Yes, and so at any rate, uh, yeah, you can sort of see. It's like apparently you don't get it. Um, you know, apparently Sodom and Gomorrah left an in impression the, on them. I guess in the same way as Lot looked towards the plains of Zoar. And look what happened to him. Yeah. And his wife and his son-in-laws and all this. What happened? There was death. There was destruction. There was loss. There was all kinds of unpleasantness. And and, and, and sin as a result of this. And so, but then, what do you have? A limit like he ain't learned a thing. No. He didn't learn a thing from what happened to in the famine to Abram and to Isaac. He didn't learn a thing by what happened, by just looking at the circumstance. 
to what happened to Lot and his family. Elimelech, genius boy, he goes and he packs up his family. He has despised God's open hand. He has left the city, uh, the, the, the house of bread, and, and he is not really celebrating or praising God in the process. And so what does Elimelech do? He ends up in Moab, which tells you the fact that he ends up in Moab. Yeah, where this is not a bad thing. And he, car- and he croaks. He dies. And it's like, well, I have a saying. You can't fix stupid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, outside of a miracle of God, you can't do that. And unfortunately, Elimelech did stupid. And uh, thankfully, the kids... Yeah, and the kids, they just totally learned. And Mimelech's kids, they didn't they didn't mess up ever since. They <laughs> it, it worked out great. Yeah, our boys Malin and Chilean. Uh, the they, sick they one just, and the other one, he did great. Yeah, the sick one and the pining away. Uh, they, they, they didn't learn anything either. What did they do? Well, they took themselves two wives, Ruth and Orpah, okay? Now, these are Moabites, okay? So they, they descend from Moab. They descend from Lot, you know, um, the nephew of Abraham. So they're actually distant cousins. But there was a thing where basically, and this is one of the things that's really debated about the fact that um, Elimelech and Naomi's sons married Moabitesses, and it's like, were they supposed to or not? Was it forbidden or not? Now, see, back in Deuteronomy, I want to say it's chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, when God led the people of Israel into the promised land, he mentioned specifically seven nations that basically it's like you go in there and you clean their clocks. You kill them all. You, you, you take their land. You take their stuff. But you, and, and you mage war them and you go after them. Do not intermarry with them. Yeah. Because they will basically cause you to worship their gods and lead you away from me. And that's going and that ain't going to go well with you. Now, of course, there were seven of these. There was parasites and all of these others and, 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 and Edomites and all these others these seven nations, but the Ammonites are not specific, uh, pardon me, the uh, Moabites are not specifically mentioned. Ammon is the uh, brother of um, of um, Moab, the other child of Lot by his other daughter. Oh. Um, oh, and by the way, the actual name Moab, the connotation is, it's funny because it has the connotation of Father and grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's a thing where you can actually, yeah. When you get in, into the the deal of of, of what the word uh, what ab means. Yeah. Ab because the word father Abba comes from yeah. ab or ab, and so there's it's used a father, but it's also there's also a grandfather connotation. So it's like you know, yeah, my daddy's my grandpa. <laughs> it's like. Ew. Wrong, so wrong. And then you hear banjos, and you're like, how did they get a banjo back (laughs) in biblical times? Yeah, it reminds me of that. That's even worse than the old song, On My Own Grandpa. Yeah. Um, So anyway, back to 
back to the situation where uh, you have this this situation where um, they're there, and they the question is, was it right for them? And it's hotly debated in the commentaries. Was it right for Milan and Chilion to have married Ruth and uh, and Orpa? Now, when you look into Nehemiah, way down the line, uh, centuries later, um, it's a hard, fast rule. You do not, they had to put away in the t- rebuilding of the second temple. It's like Ezra and Nehemiah were very hard, hard nosed on this. Like, you need to put away your Moabitish women and your children. And it's like, you were never supposed to marry these women. You were never supposed to have these children. Mm. It's like, no. And when you read the book of Judges, you can see that there was a whole lot of uh, pagan god worship that was going on in, in Moab. There was a lot of warring that went on over the years between Israel and Moab. And so there was this conflict. So the purpose, this isn't about a segregationist thing. This is about a worship of God thing. Yeah. God said, you don't intermarry with these people for a specific reason. Yeah, and the one that he expressed right off the bat is because they don't worship me. Yeah. They don't worship me. They worship idols and they will take you from me. And let me tell you something. Um, people have, you know, and so I would say that the Moabites fell under that prohibition as well. Yeah. Because in Moab, they were not worshiping God. They were worshiping idols. And so you have that situation that was going on. And people think, well, you know, it's like, no. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. Look at what happened to Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Solomon married the daughter of Pharaoh, and then he married all of these other women who were daughters of other um, kings. And it talks about that Solomon basically built a, a temple or a house for the daughter of Pharaoh to go in and worship her pagan gods. Mm. He was doing the same for his other wives. Because it's like, you know what? This is their culture. This is who they they worship. I'll build them a space for them. And it talks about how his wives turned his heart from God. Yeah. The man who actually built the temple of God in Jerusalem also ended up building a multitude of houses of worship for a multitude of pagan gods. And these women and their gods turned his heart from God to the point where basically at one point God sent a prophet to Solomon and said, you know what? Because you have done this thing and you have basically not served God with your whole heart, it's like God's going to take the kingdom away from you. Not in your days, but in the days of your son. Mm. And then there was a big split after Solomon died and his son came to the throne and he wanted to hike the taxes, whereas the people wanted a tax cut. 
And when he basically said, nah, you think it was bad under my dad? I'm going to tax the living daylights out of you. And that's when basically he lost uh, everything. Yeah, he basically lost all but two tribes. There was Judah. There was the tribe of Benjamin. And then, of course, the Levites. Yeah. Because when the others separated, they started getting into a lot of pagan stuff. And so you have this situation, and it's like, it is. it was not right of, and it doesn't say anything of Ruth or Orpah becoming worshipers of the Almighty until the point where after their their husbands, Malin and Chilean, died because, you know, they apparently they didn't learn from daddy's death. Mm. They didn't learn nothing. So what happens to them? Well, I'll just go back here. It's like, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, verse 3, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelled there about ten years. And Malan and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons uh, and her husband. And it's like, okay, so Malan and Chilion have both bit the dust. Why? Because they didn't learn nothing from daddy's death. They stayed there. And they stayed there and they married. Okay. Um, you know, sometimes you just don't get it. No. And they didn't, and so they got it. God gave them a good 10 years for these boys to figure it out, and I think that's pretty forbearing on God's behalf. But apparently they didn't get the rift, and finally they died. They didn't go home. They didn't take their wives with them and make them worship the Almighty. They didn't try. Because in ancient times, the house, whoever the head of the household says you worship was who you worshiped. Yeah. I mean, you can see that in the book of of, of Gideon, mm-hmm. um, in 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 Judges, and so when you have that, you have this situation where okay, these boys weren't doing right; they both bit the dust. So what happens to them? They both croak, and Naomi is looking at three graves and two women. Yeah, and it's like okay, I have had enough. <laughs> it's like I'm I'm booking. You two just need to go back to your families, <laughs> and I'm going back to my I'm going back home because you know I got a whole lot of bad associations with this place here. Yeah, and I don't need to be reminded of how miserable I've been here. And I have to tell you, I, I so far as personally in our family, there was a time that we did something stupid and moved someplace we weren't supposed to move. Yeah. And it's like, we got our rear ends handed to us for about a year. And you know what? There's about there's a time when you get beat up so bad, you figure it out. Yeah. We allowed circumstances to dictate our actions instead of listening for God to say something. And it's like, well, if this is a circumstance, this must be what... You know what? No. Don't assume. Ask. Exactly. But even in the midst of that situation, God produced something good out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, There's always something that can come out of even in, the worst situation. In the worst situations, um, you you end up with one good thing. Yeah. 
at least. And because God is good in even when necessarily we're not. And in Ruth, in the case of Naomi, Ruth was the good thing. Now, Orpah, by the way, her, her name actually refers to the back of the neck. It's like the mane of a horse. And there's a little connotation there that basically implies that she was stiff-necked. Oh. Okay. So. Um, I thought it was going to be, she was, I thought her name was going to be a connotation of a whale. <laughs> yeah. So She was a big girl. So basically, old Naomi looks at her daughter-in-laws and said, you need to go back to your families and your gods, and I need to go back home because I've had enough of this. Well, Orpah did just that, okay? And in the traditional writings, it talks about what happened to Orpah then. Orpah went back to her gods, worshipped pagan idols, and ended up having a child named Goliath. And there's, uh, without getting into it, anybody who wants to do the online research can, it, the, the stories concerning how she, how she came about him, came about him was rough, interesting. Um, apparently he had multiple fathers. Hey, and that's, that's, uh, yes, that's a good, that's the best way to put it. That is the best way of, of putting it. And and I'll just leave that at that. Dang. Um, but yes, um, Orpah got around. Let's just leave it like that. And so, um, but out of this, you end up with a character named Goliath. Now, the other daughter-in-law to Naomi is Ruth. And... Her, the name of her meaning is hotly debated. There are those who simply say it means companion and all that, uh, but there's really not a lot of agreement on the meaning of Ruth's name. But she does something different from Orpah. She actually tells her, basically, we'll just continue it, and it's, let's see here. Verse 6, then she rose with her daughter-in-laws that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people and giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi sent unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, as you have with the dead and with me. Apparently, at least the girls treated her yeah, and her it sounds boys, like they were good to well, them at least. Yeah, the Lord grant you that you may uh, find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lift up their voice and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters, why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, I should have a husband also tonight. And she also bear sons. Will you tarry for them till they were grown? And she's telling it's like, look, I'm not. I'm too old to raise up more boys to marry you and all of that. And in four, in fourteen, it's like, okay. Um, they lift up their voice. They wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. I mean, Orpah, she kissed her, went went away, but Ruth says. 
15, and she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back under her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee, for whither thou goest I will go, and where thou lodgest I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. So she turned away from everything. She turned away from everything. Her family, her country, uh, the gods of those uh, 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 that were worshipped in that place. And it's like, no, I am now, you know. You got me now. I am not basically your daughter-in-law. For all intents and purposes, I'm your daughter. Yeah. And where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught, if anything but death, part thee and me. And Naomi's like, okay, I'm not getting rid of this one. Yeah, she's like, all right, so you're stuck with me. And so then she goes back, and that's where she tells people, you know, God has dealt bitterly with me, you know, anyway. And so basically, they've been reduced to beggars, okay? I mean, they're in poverty. Uh, Elimelech, her sons, they would have been the workers, the wage earners. And there's her, and then there's this daughter-in-law of hers. And they're both widows, and it's like, so what's the deal? So what they did is they had to do what people who were in poverty did at that time. There was a policy in God's word, in the law, that basically said, look, when you farm your land, you don't glean everything out of the field. You leave a certain amount in it. You leave it for animals and you leave it for the poor. That way that people who have fallen on hard times, people who are, in, are destitute, if they're willing to go out there and work for it, they won't starve. Yeah. And Naomi was not up for it, but Ruth was. And she started going out and glean and looking for permission to glean in the fields. And she ended up in the fields of a man named Boaz. Now, Boaz was a relative of Elimelech's. But he had the good sense not to leave. In fact, in the temple, isn't it interesting? One of the two pillars of the temple is actually named Boaz. Really? Yeah. There's actually, in, in, in the temple, there was two, uh, two major columns or pillars, and one of them was named Boaz. And the connotation was that one of strength. Some people say the word, the name Boaz means quickness, but there's this connotation of strength. Uh, and uh, scholars basically believe that it, uh, at least one scholar believes that it actually refers to the um, sharpness of mind of uh, of Boaz. He was a very smart fellow. That that much we know from Scripture. And so what happens with Boaz is um, he notices there's this new person out there in the field gleaning, and it's like, um, and she's conducting herself very well, mm-hmm. and it's like okay, um, so he asks his you know. Who's the uh, who's the new one? Who's who's the new person out here gleaning in in the field? And then of course they're able to find out it's Ruth, 
She is the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And at that point, he realizes, okay, I have a family connection yeah. uh, here to, to these two people. And it's like, leave them some extra. Mm-hmm. Leave them some extra. And then, of course, you know, she comes home, Ruth does, to Naomi. And she's got a lot, a, a decent amount of food. And it's like, you know, who did you? Where'd you find where, this? Where, where, where you been gleaning? And it's like, well, there's this man, et cetera. And once the connection is made, it's like Boaz. He's a near kinsman. Mm-hmm. He's a relative of my husband's. And it's like, yeah, you need to stick. And he would tell his servants, basically, keep her near you. Yeah. You know, for her own safety. And it's like, which was, you know, I mean, Boaz is doing all of the right things. Ruth is doing all the right things. Naomi realizes this. Um, then there's the circumstance where basically um, there's the time of, let's see here. There was the time of the winnowing barley in the threshing floor. And basically she instructs Ruth on how to approach Boaz in such a way as to let it be known that she wants to become his wife. Okay. And Boaz is both surprised by this because there was a significant age difference. He was an older man. She was still a younger woman. And, but he was also pleased and it's like okay yeah you know uh, this is yeah i'm like yes i'm seriously good with this people had you know because uh because he had went off and he had a drunk he he actually had been eating and drinking and he you know and he dozed off and he woke up and there's a woman at his feet you know this is not you know this isn't the norm and it's like uh oh yeah and it's like uh who exactly are you you know because you're just coming out of it and it's like yeah um it's like what happened like i am ruth your handmaid and it's like basically um put your skirt over me and and she's telling this in ruth chapter three for you are a near kinsman in short be a covering to me yeah and and it's like it's like you did not follow young men whether they were rich or poor um you know everybody knows that you are a good reputation and and yes i will i will i will marry you but there's an issue in the way it worked is and this is what goes back to what he's talking about with Ruth with uh, uh, Naomi talked about Ruth and Orpah it's like if a man died and his wife had not conceived children so where there was not an inheritor yeah an heir his brother was supposed to marry her okay there was that issue back when Joseph was in captivity his brother Judah uh, had some sons and there was a woman and basically 
he had two sons that were so wicked that God killed them. Yeah. Um, because it's like God killed the one. It's like, okay, well, he didn't have any children by by this woman. So Tamar, it's like, I got to give her another one of my sons now to marry. And then he gets killed by God because he doesn't want to raise up seed by her. Yeah. And it's like, and it's like, I still got one more son. I am not giving this chick my last son because I don't want him to die. You know, this is a bad move. I know I'm supposed to, but I'm not going to do this. And so that's when she plots basically how she ends up seducing him. Yeah. And she has a child by him and he gets all self-righteous about it. And it's like, whose ring is this that you left? Whose staff is this that you left? Mm -hmm. It's like, you're more virtuous than I am. It's like, you, you know, it's like, I was supposed to do this and I didn't do that. So I can't diss you for, you know, and it's like, didn't Judah doesn't come off very well in the story. But the idea is that's why when Naomi is talking to Orpa and to Ruth, it's like, I don't have any more sons to give you as your husbands. And if I had a son tomorrow, you'd be too old by the time they were old enough to have children by. It's like, go back to your gods. Go back to your your place. Your place. It's like you know, but she but Ruth doesn't do that, and it's like now, so due to the fact that there are no brothers to Malan or Chilean, Naomi has anymore. It's like you can go to then a near relative, what was called a goel, yeah, or a near kinsman. Well, what happens then? It's got to be the nearest one. Or the nearest one has to, all the ones in in, in order. between in order have to renounce their rights. Yeah. So Boaz is like, uh, yeah, I'll marry you, but I can't. Mm-hmm. Because there's one that's closer in relation, than relation to Elimelech than, than I am. And... He gets with that guy, and the guy basically um, has this, it's like, oh, okay, we're doing these deals and all this. And it's like, and they deal, and it's like, oh, yeah, I can't, the other guy who is closer in relations, like, I can't marry her. This isn't going to work for me. I'm going to renounce my rights to her. And they had what was called the casting of the shoe. You would throw the shoe. And that's a really funky little... um, um, tradition we still have an echo of it now um, it used to be that because of that you ever see um, people who you see the just married sign on the back of the vehicle yeah and attached or a bunch to the bumper bunch of like a cans bunch of, of bunch of cans yeah before that it wasn't cans it was shoes oh and people would put old shoes on there huh and that comes from the tradition of throw of of casting the shoe. The, people put old shoes because I'm not going to put a good shoe out there. Yeah, destroy no. my shoes. But it, it all goes back to this this tradition of renouncing your right to this woman. Okay. So in a way, all those cans were like all these other guys. No, I'm I'm giving up my rights to her. 
<laughs> that's cool. See, it's one of I those little that. yeah. It's it's one of those little funky things that you know. It's one of those things you see it in cartoons or you'd see it in shows, but you never really. You have no idea it connect yeah. that it kept connects to scripture that this tradition is based on an older tradition and an older tradition, and it has to do with renouncing your rights uh, <clears throat> to as a near kinsman to somebody else. Okay. And that wasn't just true of in Israel, but it was true in, in, in various peoples in the Middle East. So anyway, with that, Boaz then marries um, Ruth, and of course, they live happily ever after. Yeah. But she conceives a son whose name is Obed. And Obed has a son named Jesse, and Jesse has a son named David. And that's all wrapped up, basically, um, and basically you, you get to that point where basically Boaz beget, in, in the last verse of uh, uh, Ruth, it says, well, next to the last verse, I should say, and uh, Salmon begat Boaz, that was Boaz's father, and Boaz begat a Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. And that's why it's just before the first book of Samuel, because Samuel is the one that God, the prophet that God chooses to anoint King David. Now, so what do we have here? We have two women. We have Ruth and we have Orpah. Both of them Moabitesses, both of them taking very different paths. Orpah, after Chilean dies, goes back to her people and her pagan gods. Gets with a whole lot of men and produces Goliath. That never should have happened because Elimelech and his family never should have went to Moab. There are decisions you make in life that come back to bite you on the booty. Just like Abraham's decision to go to Egypt, where he picked up Hagar, came back to bite him and his wife and his descendants. So also the decision that Elimelech made to go there, which brought together Chil, uh, Chilean's interaction with Orpah and then her going back to her gods and actually conceiving then um, you know and, and conceiving Goliath what do you think Goliath's perception of the Israelites was what do you think that basically he thought of the Israelites in regards to his mother Probably not a very favorable one. The culture of the time might not have been favorable to it anyway, but certainly not the fact that basically there had been a really, it's like my mother was really good to this man. He up and died. This woman basically left. Um, you know, and my mother was sent back to her family and it's like, you know, how does how does a child process events in adults' lives? 
not that Goliath was any, you know, model of, of uh, that one would sympathize with, but that's, uh, that was what happened with Orpah. But with Ruth, she had come to worship God. And as a result, she became the great-grandmother of King David. And so basically, Ruth and Orpah meet again through David and Goliath. And so at that point, they're facing off on the battlefield. Now, Goliath's name, basically, he's, he's kind of the man in the middle, okay? But in the, in, in, in the basis of Goliath's name, there's also these roots that have to do with the uncovering. And it's really a weird thing how that root, I was looking it up last night, and it's like, why is Goliath's name has this thing of this, this root word that has to do with uncovering? It's like, what in the world does it got And the place where this uncovering is used is uncovering nakedness. It's like, what up with that? It's almost like exposure. It's like, I'm like I don't, I don't that's, that's, that's strange. I don't quite get that. But then I looked up the word because Goliath was from a place called Gath. It's like, okay, well, you know, what are some of the meanings of the words that are, are used in this Gath? And it's like, and, and so I'm looking at this place that has to do with the wine press. And it also has to do with a minstrel or a player of instruments. Isn't that a little weird? And so I, you look at this and it's like, so I, I was reflecting on that. It's like, well, that's, that's interesting. Whenever I see things like the wine press, what came into my mind was that Christ will, will tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God at his return. Who will he be doing that against? He will be doing it against those who have risen up against his people. And who is behind that? Antichrist, who is basically the son of perdition, who is basically empowered by Lucifer. And who was Lucifer? He was the crowning cherub that covereth. His pipes and his tabrets were in him. He essentially was a music maker. So you have a music maker who basically is going to receive a judgment at the wine press and the uncovering. That's the day that basically God's, the Lord is going to expose Satan He's going to tread down his forces and the minstrel that basically has played the tune that the whole world has danced to for many, many, many millennium is going to be completely put uh, down uh, before the millennial reign, before his little segue afterwards. So I'm looking at that. So this is in some way a foreshadowing of Christ's judgment against the victory of David over Goliath is a foreshadowing of, of the victory of Christ over Satan at his return. 
It's like, okay, I can see that. I think that that's an interesting thought to play with. So that's I'm, something I've never heard. Uh, I heard. I've never heard it really described that way. Well, to me, it's the, uh, you know, when I study these words and it's like, well, there's this root word, this root word, and this root word. And people say, well, this isn't related. This is not, this is not how that works. And it's like, nothing is by chance. No. Nothing is by chance. It's like there's a reason for everything, even if it looks like there isn't. Well, that's it. These related terms, these these things. And so I'm looking at this and it's like, okay. And and so it's like, I can I can see this. So. But David is there, Goliath is there, and Goliath is, and, and that brings us back to 1 Samuel 17, where basically the Philistines gathered together the, their armies to battle, and they were at Shako, which belongs to Judah, pitched between Shako and, uh, and Azekah in Ephrath Damim. Ephrath Damim basically has to do with it's almost like the border of blood. And these terms here about these places, a lot of it has to do with being closed in or or hedged in, really. It's like there's a hedge here. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like God is setting you up. Yeah. And so Saul, however, is the king of Israel at this time in name and in office. But, and we'll get to this later on in, in probably another episode, but by this time, Saul has already been basically rejected by God because he was not obedient. And Samuel has secretly went and anointed David, king of Israel, in his place. Now, part of the king's responsibility is to go out and battle the enemy. So Saul and his forces are basically gathered together in verse 2, pitched by the valley of Elah and set in battle against the Philistines. Um, and the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side and there was a valley between them and went out a champion of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits in a span. I give you an idea how that works. A cubit runs basically from the elbow to the tip of the finger. That's a span. Okay. Or pardon me, a cubit. A span is the distance from basically the thumb. The thumb to the tip. To the tip of, of, the, of the middle finger. And so you have this thing where you have so when you talk about how to measure that out, you can get a general idea of how long the average length of a man's arm, forearm and hand is and, and start calculating from there. Best estimates based on this show him being somewhere between 9 foot 9 inches to maybe something over... Uh, between 10, some would think even 12 feet tall. Oh, wow. Um, but at least 9 feet, 9 inches conservatively based on the Masoretic text. And so that's a pretty big boy. Yeah. Um, and seeing how, like, you know, you get people, I mean, the closest we can really 
get to that is someone like a who was it the tallest man in the world for a while Robert Wadlow exactly I forget what the newest one is but they barely get around you know what I mean so yeah a lot of these guys do not have what you call big mobility because they're but their bone structure is like flimsy exactly but back in these days, when you actually had giants on the earth, there was the yeah. Anakim and the... Yeah, this is a different breed. This is a different breed of, of animal. Yeah, it's not like someone who just was really tall. Exactly. Then you're going back into that whole Genesis 6 thing with... Yeah, the, uh, which makes uh, you wonder if that's God. how he came about. There were still these people running around at the time, and most people don't really understand, and this is a side topic that... Uh, well, maybe we'll explore someday, but we can in this episode where basically you had a lot of these, um, a lot of the people wonder, it's like, wow, God was so hard on the, you know, on, on what was going on when he sent the children of Israel into the promised land. It's like, kill the men, kill the women, kill the children. It's like, there's reasons. It's like, yeah, because that genetic deal was going on in some of the people had been scattered through through the genes of people who were of those kingdoms. And so it's like, no, God has a real thing about these descendants of the people who basically, where you have the sons of God and the daughters of men and all that. He's really down on them. And it's like, no, I want this cut off. Yeah, there, it was, should have never been there. Yeah, because the report, if you remember how it was, the, the 12 spies were sent in. Yeah. Uh, 12 or 10. One or the other, yeah. Yeah, slipping my mind at the moment. Well, anyway, the spies come back, and it's like, I believe it's 12. Anyway, the majority of the spies come back, and it's like, look, you know, they, they be big. Yeah. These boys are big. I mean, yeah, the fruit of the land is fantastic. I mean, check this out, you know, what we're bringing back. But they looked at us like we're grasshoppers, and next to them, we are grasshoppers. We're like bugs next to these people. They are that stinking big. Dang. And it's like people think that basically these guys were just, that the Israelites were just cowardly. No, they saw some people, and it's like, Oh, dude. And it's like, how do we take you? How do you we... know, I'm, I'm run of the litter next to this guy. Yeah. How do we take down these things? And it's like, but, you know, Joshua, uh, it's like. Joshua was crazy. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it, it's like, no, we can. Like, know, we got this. We got these guys. We got it's this. Like, God already said we have it. So let's just take it. Yeah, I mean, these are squatters. Two of two of the spies are like, we are well able to take the land. Yeah, the rest of them, no, nah, we are going to get beat, and it disheartened the whole nation. Yeah, and caused them to wait forty years until that generation died and a new generation rose up that would go in and take the land, and and that's really unfortunate um, because that forty years in the wilderness actually wore down. Moses as well and all this and it's like it, it, it it's a shame that you know that they went through what they went through because they were not willing to trust God in faith that they were able to uh, take the land 
So you get back to this situation. Now we were back to David and Goliath. And isn't amazing. I mean, in, in the Exodus, you got this thing where they're beating down giants. They're entering the, the promised land and they're beating down giants. Now they're still fighting giants. In this case, it's David and Goliath. Now, let me give this one. If, if David and Goliath is a foreshadowing of, the, of what's going to come down when Jesus returns and smacks down Satan at his return, the fact that Goliath would have been genetically of those who were, I guess you would call a hybrid, uh, a demigod, a whatever you want to use, whatever terms sons of you God, use. yeah, whatever you want to use. Will Antichrist be one of those as well? Hmm. A mixed hybrid genetic oddity. Um, that's an interesting thing. That is interesting to think about. And will he be coming back also to basically crush? The Giants. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. If we are <laughs> yeah, here, yeah, think of that, that's in an a interesting time, thought to, to toy with, isn't it? If I'm if I'm alive, and I've got like twelve foot dudes running around, who are running around like athletes. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. That's just that would be first off. That'd be messed up just to see. Indeed. Um, I don't even see how sports could be the same. And the thing about <laughs> and the thing about imagine uh, they would have to extend football fields. No, um, I think they. I think you have you have to raise the basketball goal. It just has to happen. <laughs> Everything is a layup because you remember there are other passages in Scripture that refer to Goliath. He's actually, he has brothers. He's the run of the litter. That's terrifying. So <laughs> imagine the sight, like just the hands and the arms and everything. Because it doesn't say he was like physically jacked up looking. Like it was proportioned. You know what I mean? Like he was proportionally. Right. It wasn't side. like he was a beanpole. Yeah, no, but he had like extra digits, I think, on his hands and stuff from what people have said, I think. There are those who, who actually, and here's the thing about it. Think about what he was carrying around. Yeah, the weight when you of that look, stuff. Yeah, his sword, I mean, his armor. When you see brass there, what that is is that's bronze. Yeah. That's not light. And a shekel is like two-thirds of an ounce. Yeah. So if you do the calculator trip on translate, oh, this many shekels at two-thirds of an ounce equals this much poundage. And you start converting these numbers. I mean, he had like normal sized dudes for armor. Yeah, he had he had he had armor that was weighing you know literally. I, I think one estimate I've seen estimates depending on who you you go to that that are talking about 150 200 pounds more that his helmet in itself would have been like 25 pounds or whatever. That's just crazy. I mean, just, it, 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 you know, you think about these numbers and you hear these uh, people try figuring out how much did 
you know, how much was the shekel and how much did it weigh and et cetera. How much did he carry around? And you around? realize how much, first of all, he was ridiculously strong. Yeah. But you also realize that even as big as he was, you're looking at, he was extremely unwieldy. Now, his armor made him like a tank. Yeah. If you went after him. You couldn't. Actually penetrating that armor was going to be nearly impregnable. But he had no speed. Yeah. Nor would he have had agility. His his deal was when he went out there, and it describes here, you know, basically helmet of brass, coat of mail, uh, 5,000 shekels of brass was his, basically his, his armor, greaves of brass between his legs, target of brass between his shoulders. His, the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. Um, his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and, and he had a shield bearer going before him. And then he starts going out and he starts dissing. He just trash talking everybody. Trash talking God, basically. Now Saul was supposed to go out and fight, and it's not like Saul didn't have armor. But yeah. But the truth of the matter, and and Saul was not a small man. Remember when Saul was chosen as king of Israel? He was head. He and was shoulders. head and shoulders. Literally, that's where we get that talking about people being head and shoulders above the pack. Yeah. Well, he was a head taller than anybody else. So Saul was not exactly a short dude. No. He was tall. He obviously would have been athletic. Um, he had his own armor, and it was quality armor. Yeah. But that's exactly the confrontation that Goliath was built for. Yeah. A large man coming. Because you see that, and you think to yourself, the only way I can confront this tank is by throwing something at it that's just as big and just as well armored as it is. And it's like, because you're not going to take it down any other way. That's the mentality. Yeah. So the idea was that somebody like Saul should have armored up. He's the big guy. He should be out there fighting this. this but even the, if you're the biggest the guy. guy in Israel, you're still not that big. You're not that big. You're and not if Goliath, you are that big, yeah, then you've got your own issues too. And, yeah, you're not going to be Goliath big. And basically, that's what Goliath was fine-tuned to fight. Yeah. It's like, I'll take on your biggest guy, your best armored guy, and I will beat him down. And he would have. And we will settle this right now. And that's exactly what he starts ranting. And he's dissing God and he's dissing... And this isn't the first time he's probably ever done this. No, this is a guy who's a veteran... It's like, basically, he looks at the armies of Israel. Why are you come out and set your battle in array? I'm a Philistine. You're servants of Saul. Choose you a boy. Let him come down here. Bring out your best champion. If he can beat me, we'll all serve you. If not, we'll serve you. And it's like, basically, he defies the armies of Israel. It's like, give me a man in verse 10 of verse 17. We might fight together. And Saul heard these words, and they were dismayed and greatly afraid. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, this guy's a human tank, and he wants one of us to come fight him. And you're looking around, and it's like, of course, Saul's the guy that's supposed to, the king is supposed to go and fight. And it's like, I really don't want a piece of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, this, you know, there are times when you, you look, and it's like, you know, 
I'm not sure today's a good day to die. Yeah. I, I, it, this was not on my bucket. I did not plan to, to die today. Yeah, to-do list. Um, eat not hearty, dying was eat, part of eat it. Eat hearty breakfast, put on yeah. a clean suit, die on the battlefield. Not what I had in mind. No. And so you're looking at so this. So you got all of them over there, and none of them are going to find. And this goes on for days. This was like, this wasn't just a one and done. Exactly. He's trash talking him. And, and in fact, let's see here. In verse 16, the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented him to himself for 40 days. Yeah. And he was there during the morning and during the evening. Now, interesting love. He showed up twice a day for 40 days. Now, the question is, why would he show up in the evening and the morning? Because that was prayer time. Oh. So he prayed just, your morning prayers and you prayed your evening prayers. And he would go so out there. So he was there. just terrible While all they're the time. out praying, he's like, he's out there ranting. Show me what you got. Yeah. They're praying and it's like you pray in the morning and he's out there mouthing off. He's You're mocking praying you in the evening. and he's mocking God. Exactly. I'm, he's so mocking he's just your, all around he's terrible. Mocking your, he, he's mocking your prayers. He's mocking the God to whom you pray. He's out there running his big mouth mm. morning and evening. And then they need lunch one day. <laughs> well, you know, Jesse sends down three boys to the battle because, you know. That's what you did. That's what you did. You know, you send your boys down to fight and all that. And he's got three sons down there. And, you know, it's like, David, you need to run these boys some lunch. You know, you need to run these boys some food. And it says David was the youngest and the three eldest followed Saul, the three oldest boys. There was more sons of Jesse than that. But the three oldest boys went to the battlefield. Yeah. You had to have a certain amount left back at home to take care of everything. But it's like, this one's the youngest one. I'll cut him loose and let him go down and run some, some food. And it's like, and David was the youngest and the three elders followed Saul, verse 14. And David went and returned from Saul to feed his brother's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself for 40 days. And Jesse said unto David his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to the brethren. And carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand. And look how the brethren fare and take their pledge. It's like, go down there, run your boys. Here's a little something for their commanding officer. Take stock of yeah. the situation. Tell me what, you know. What's going on? Yeah. And and at that point, you know, he left his flocks, uh, verse 20, and he goes down there as his father told him. And basically he's, he's looking here, and he starts hearing everything that is Big going set. on. And he's talking, and it's like, why is nothing being done about this jerk? So he was there in either the morning or the night, you know, probably because it because he went there twice a day. Yeah, but, yeah, and 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 he he's talking. And it's like, what is the deal here? And they're telling. There's this guy Goliath. He's from Gath. He's this, this, that. This is what's been going on. And it's like, why is it something? Somebody smacked down this jerk. Yeah, and he's talked to his brothers and. 
you know, and, and David, it says here, it's interesting in verse 26, and David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, what shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armors of the living God? And it's funny. The king has already said, basically, any man that goes down there, you know it's bad when the king starts offering a reward. Yeah. It's like, I do not want to fight this dude. Nobody in their right mind wants to fight this dude. Okay. How much am I going to have to pay to have someone to find somebody who's crazy enough to go down there and fight this dude? And it's like, hmm, you know, what what can I offer here? At this point, it's like, you know, I, I got to start. How big a check am I going to have to write to yeah. find somebody that's going to do this? Well, it says the king will enrich him with great riches, give him his daughter, and make his father's house uh, free in Israel, sort no taxes. Yeah. It's like, look, I'll revoke taxes on all your family. I will... Poor, I will make it rain money I on will, you. It'll I be will, worth your while. And you can be my son-in-law. Yeah. It's like, seriously, I'm offering, I'm offering. And and basically David starts talking with his brother, Eliab and all this. And basically he starts getting dissed by his brothers. It's yeah. like, look, why aren't you back? What, you know, why did you come down here? Who did you leave the sheep with? You know, you're you're just... You got you're sporting an ego, and and you just wanted, you know, you just wanted to come down here and and, you know, you you just came down here because you wanted to see the fight. Exactly. And uh, David replied, and David said, "What have I done? What have I now done? You know, what what did I do this time? You yeah. know, is there not a cause? Was there not reason?" And he basically is like, "Look." Um, somebody should be smacking this dude down and nobody wants to do it. And they're dissing him because he's saying that somebody needs, it's like, you need to go back and yeah. take care of some sheep, you know, but you don't see anybody lining up to take on Goliath. And I have to tell you, things aren't really that different because if you look at it today, what do you have today? You have a lot of big voice intimidating a lot of believers. Believers are standing back and they're all suited up in their armor and they're very shiny and they look good. But you know what? They are terrified of the fight. They have armor that's not been battle worn. Yeah. Or they see an opponent so big. I can't take this thing on. What am I able to do against something so big? What am I able to do against something so strong, so well armored, you know? Who am I to take on this, to take on them, to take on, you know? And there is, and it's the same fear here that you saw back in, in, the, uh, in the children of Israel when they face giants then the spies come back they're too big for us they're too big you know that's the thing about it 
the real question is, how big is your enemy is not the question. The question is, how big is, is, your, is your God? And do you really believe that God is bigger than your enemies? And the truth of the matter is, every one of those people, every one of those men who were there, knew about God. They had heard about God. They've been taught about God. They worshiped God. They believed in God. But the question was, when it came down to putting your neck out, do you trust God? Do you trust God? You know, it's, uh, we taught, one of the things that God dealt with me a few years ago about, and, and you hear it, I, I didn't used to do this. But God really impressed me to do this. You were constantly hearing me refer to him as the Almighty. He's not the, it's not just that he's the most mighty or the frequently mighty or the fairly regularly mighty or the sort of mighty or the occasional mighty or the not very mighty. He is the almighty. And I think we need to remind ourselves of who he is. He is the almighty. And all power in, in heaven and earth was given by him to Christ, and he has given it to us. We need to remember in whose might we go. It is not in our might, it is in God's might. And if we remind ourselves of that, then we'll be more like David, because David knew in whose might he was going. And so there's this situation. Now, at this point, we're going to actually get down to the conflict. And we don't want to give that away just yet because there's a few more things going on. The real thing is at this point, we know what brought David from, from Ruth to the battlefield. We know what, what brought, Goliath. brought Goliath from Orpah in the book of Ruth to the battlefield. But the third main character in this drama is Saul. And why isn't Saul out there fighting? Why is David the one fighting? It's not just that um, David is finishing up something that goes back to the book of Ruth and is foreshadowing something that's going to happen at the return of Christ. It's that he's also dealing with the fact that he is the king of Israel. Just nobody but him and Samuel know it yet. And so probably for the next episode, we need to delve into why wasn't it Saul? Why couldn't David fight in Saul's armor? Um, and, and, and that situation, because... David wasn't just anybody. David, you know, the funny thing is, at that point, Saul had a crown, but was no longer a king. And David was a king who, no, who didn't yet have a crown. And I think that's probably what we should focus on in our next uh, episode, 
and see what brought David specifically as as the as a descendant of uh, Boaz, Obed, Jesse to the battlefield and why only he could have done it and why Saul couldn't have. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. If you want to stay up to date on all things regarding the show, please follow our Instagram page at Voice in the Wilderness underscore podcast or check out our Facebook page at Voice in the Wilderness. We also have a YouTube channel called Voice in the Wilderness. So please subscribe to it. Follow me on all the social media. If you're listening to this on a streaming service that allows you to follow me, please do that. If you're listening to this and they allow reviews or something like that, please leave me a review. Every little bit helps. Thank you so much for all your support.